This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall with 8th Congressional District Congresswoman, Dr. Kim Schreier. I am your producer, Kat Pipkin. Special thanks tonight to Louise Pathé, Robin Gittleman, and Kevin Jones. And thanks to everybody for joining us, whether you're with us live via Facebook Live or YouTube, via the podcast, or via terrestrial radio. We're so glad you're here. And before we begin, as always, we wish to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many Indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. We're grateful to you. Thank you. As I'm sure everybody who's on here tonight knows, the race in the 8th Congressional District is the most closely watched race in the state. So we're very fortunate to have Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier with us tonight to talk about what's at stake in this race and to discuss her many achievements during her last four years in office. Prior to being elected in 2018, Dr. Schreier spent her career as a pediatrician in Issaquah. As a member of Congress, she currently sits on the Energy and Commerce Committee, as well as the Committee on Agriculture, where, by the way, she's the sole member from the Pacific Northwest. She also sits on the Subcommittee for Conservation and Forestry. We know you have many questions tonight, so please feel free to enter those in the chat bar when you have them, and we'll get to as many as we can before the end. And with that, I will turn things over to my friend. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you so much, Kat. It is wonderful to have everybody here with us tonight. Uh, wherever you are joining us, if you are joining us live here tonight or somewhere down the line listening to a pre-record here, uh, this is going to be very important programming tonight, and we are just grateful that you uh, have joined us. And uh, what an occasion to uh, have our 8th Congressional District uh, congr uh, representative here with us uh, tonight. It is always such a pleasure to have you on the show, and we always seem to do this around the time of your birthday, do we not? So I, I will say happy birthday. Uh, Stefan, thank you, and happy birthday to you. We each <laughs> turned a year older together. Exactly. We were born, I think we determined about eight days apart. So this 19, say August 68 babies forever. Um, I just so want to say I, I'm, I'm the older one. <laughs> it would have mattered when we were five. I, yeah, it absolutely would have mattered when you were five. I'm the older one, so I have seniority. Yeah, so... Oh my goodness. So listen, th this is your, th uh, your, your third uh, election campaign. Uh, you have been in office now for four, uh, four years. And I think where I'd love to start our conversations by talking about the stakes and kind of how you see their evolution. Certainly things have changed dramatically over the last four years, particularly since you and I first spoke. So how are you thinking now about what is at stake for the country in this election? Well, Stefan, first, Thank you for having me on again, Kat. Thank you for having me on. And to everybody else in this uh, in this conversation, I want to thank you because I see all your faces and I know that you've been knocking doors and working with me and you have been with me since day one back in 2018. And so thank you for investing your energy and your time and your resources and talking with friends and knocking on doors and making this all happen from the grassroots level. Um, you know, the stakes, Stefan... They haven't changed a whole lot. In fact, I think what I would say is the stakes are still incredibly high in this race and very likely more acute, more pressing, and more urgent. Um, for example, um, healthcare is still an issue on everybody's mind. I think right now with inflation, with gas prices, with gouging, we're all feeling uh, tighter budgets 
And so that need to have affordable medication and affordable um, uh, insurance, uh, we're feeling more than ever right now. And I'm so proud that we just passed a big healthcare bill. I mean, it is, is monumental, but there's more work to do to make sure that everybody feels this. Um, I also want to say democracy, you know, this was on the line in 2018. We saw a lurch toward authoritarianism and scapegoating and some, you know, mean spiritedness that was really dividing the country apart. And I think we're seeing, you know, a through line from that to January 6th to still a very tense environment. Um, and I believe that the outcome of, of this election will impact uh, whether our democracy thrives or struggles. And um, and I'm deeply concerned about that. And of course, I'll just mention one other thing or two other things. Um, one is climate. Again, um, we just took phenomenal climate action, but I think we all feel a real sense of urgency here. Mm. Um, and, uh, and the last is choice. And this was always kind of out there in a um, maybe it's threatened or if maybe possibly. And here we are now sitting in real life with the row overturned and 50 years of precedent and women making their own healthcare decisions and having access to legal abortion is now not the case in half the states in this country. So there's a lot at stake and, uh, and a lot to be concerned about and a lot I'll be working on. You have just given an extraordinary overview of everything that we are going to be talking about tonight and going into depth on so many of the things that you just mentioned. Before we do, I want to get your thoughts about our district. This is where we started our initial conversation, was about our district, which the 8th is unique in so many ways. Um, it is the only one that spans the Cascades. Um, the people in the district range from kind of the semi-urban suburban to very, very rural. And I'll just ask you, during your time in office, how have you thought about the way that you would represent the district like, like the 8th? And has that changed or evolved over time? This is how I think of the 8th district. And it's changed a little bit in its configuration, but it's this description still fits. Um, so I think of the 8th district as a miniature version of Washington state. We've got tech, we've got ag, we've got hydropower, we've got orchards. Um, we've got a little of everything with forest land, public lands, rivers. So um, I think of that as a as kind of a microcosm of the state, but then at the same time, it's kind of like a miniature United States of America, if mm. you really think about it. And I love the eighth district for a couple reasons. One, it keeps me really focused on where the vast majority of the people in this country are, because I have these conversations every day. Uh, I'm at almost a hundred town halls over the past almost four years, and you do a lot of listening. And what I have found over time is that there really are true, good old American values that we all share, no matter which part of the district we're in, we all have families and concerns and worries about our kids and what's going on in our country. And if you focus on where we agree, it's really pretty easy to represent the eighth district because there's a lot of places where we agree. 
I do want to talk a little bit about some of the legislation that you managed to get passed, and I think largely employing that philosophy. And, you know, it, it varies. It, it, it's very interesting to me that this district is indeed a bellwether, I think, both at the, the, the state level and also the national level. And so, you know, I think there's much that we can, can learn from this, and also not for nothing, but uh, a lot of people are watching what is going to happen in our district very, very closely for that very reason. So all the more important reasons for us to have this discussion tonight, gang. Um, so let's talk about some of the recent developments in the news that are absolutely shaping this midterm. And you mentioned the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't think we can overstate the importance of this. This is a historic piece of legislation, right? This is, it does a ton on climate, prescription drug costs, tax equity, so much more. Um, you, you've done a ton on climate. In fact, this cat noted you are on the Energy and Commerce Committee, as well as being the sole member uh, from the Pacific Northwest on the Ag Committee. I wonder, what are some of the things that you are personally excited about in this bill uh, on, on the climate front? Uh, well, Stefan, you know, we're, we're not going to spend a whole half hour on this, but let me just say, <laughs> let's start with the healthcare part, then let's go to the climate part. But there's all the little in-betweens that I'm so excited well, I, about. So here's, if, if you want to know the way that I've broken it down, just so you know it's coming, I want to start with climate. I definitely want to talk about prescription drug costs, and then I want to talk about tax equity. So we'll get to all of that stuff for sure. Great. Okay. Well, then let's go in your order. I am so excited about this bill because... I feel like with all these town halls and with all the conversations at doors, uh, with all the people that visit me in my Issaquah office or in my DC office, there are these common themes. You know, Dr. Schreier, when are you guys going to work on climate and get something passed through the house? Dr. Schreier, you have diabetes too. Can't you bring down the cost of insulin? Dr. Schreier, why can't Medicare negotiate the cost of prescription drugs? They negotiate everything else. And this is the answer, as you alluded to, that it addresses so many of those things. You know, with climate, this is the biggest investment in climate ever. And it stands to get us really close to the goal. I mean, like a 40% reduction by 2030. That is a speedy reduction that gets us well on our way uh, to achieving what we want to achieve with you know, a great amount of compromise to get this bill to squeak through. And I'm very excited about investments in research, in hydro, in uh, pumped hydrogen, in uh, turning Washington state potentially into a, a green hydrogen hub, in batteries, battery storage, in solar, in wind, but also, you know, that's the macro level. If you go to the micro level, there's credits in there that will help every family save money and save energy now and in the future. So if you've been thinking about putting a heat pump in your house, uh, this is the time to do it because there's a tax credit for doing it. If you've been thinking about solar panels, if you're thinking about buying a new or used electric vehicle, this is the time. And you know what happens when you do this transition is that you will see lower energy bills paying off month after month in the future. And I'm very excited that we're all going to be able to participate in this and feel the difference and do the right thing for for the earth. It's incredibly exciting. And honestly, it is one of those things that gives people like me, like everybody watching, hope that we are actually doing something substantial once and for all. Finally, I think it was very much a surprise that uh, 
let's say, a, a certain senator from West Virginia decided to get on board with this. But we are very, very grateful that he did. And so here we are. Um, let's do talk about the uh, the healthcare aspects of this, because I know this is something that is very, very personal to you. Um, you've done a lot of work on this. Uh, and in fact, Democrats have worked very, very hard for years, right, to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. I'll ask you about that aspect of it first. What, when do you think we should expect this to go into effect and how do you see the impact of this? Um, well, first of all, hallelujah, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it's about time that the biggest purchaser of medications can negotiate the cost of those medications. I mean, can you imagine, just wrap your head around this. And I know you've thought about it before, Stefan, but the way things stand right now, this was a concession, by the way, to get the Affordable Care Act passed. The way things stand right now, Medicare has to cover any FDA-approved drug, but cannot negotiate a lower cost. So it basically puts all the cards in the hands of the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. to just name their price. And whatever it is, seniors get stuck paying it. And that is why you're seeing seniors paying such high prices for their medications. So finally, this bill will have give Medicare the power to negotiate the cost of the, starting with the most expensive medications, either individually or in aggregate. And starting just in a few months, in 2023, we're going to have 30, $35 insulin, um, one insulin in each class. I know I'm getting maybe a little too deep here, but there but I think that this is a very personal issue to you. you you're, yeah. you're a diabetic, and I know that this is something you've done a lot of work on in Congress, right? That's right. It is very personal to me. And um, and I just think that it should be personal to all of us when you have a medication that people cannot survive without. That, um, you know, the patent for this medication in 1920, I believe, 2021, um, was sold for $1 because uh, Best and Banting wanted insulin to be a public good. They wanted it to be affordable for anybody so that no child would ever die from diabetes again. And then look what's happened. Uh, over the past 20 years, my insulin's gone from $40 to over 300. Mm -hmm. Nothing has inflation like that. Mm. And just in the past uh, 10 years, it's tripled in price. So it just keeps going up and up and up. And, you know, what happens is that if you don't have good insurance, um, or if you are on Medicare, uh, or if you don't have insurance at all, then you are paying uh, really unaffordable prices, it could be a, it could be up to $1,000 a month, just to survive. And so people are rationing it, one out of four diabetics rations their insulin, think about that. And, and they're making terrible choices around that too. Electricity, this, what, you know, rent and things like that. It, it, it's just, it's unconscionable. That's right. And also, you know, you need a certain amount of insulin to stay alive. You need more than that to stay healthy. And we want people to be able to stay healthy. And let me tell you, that is a dangerous balancing act. And so, yes, this is very personal to me and to anybody out there who knows anybody who uses insulin. It needs to be affordable for everybody. And this does it at $35 insulin. Are there other aspects on the healthcare front that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, addresses that you want to talk about? You know, I'd like to mention a couple. Um, you know, one is that in addition, seniors will get their vaccines for free. I don't know if anybody has uh, had to get a shingles vaccine, but it is north of $400 and uh, that is enough 
where my parents had to pause and think about whether we were going to go to get their shingles uh, shot. And so uh, that is one. The other, this one matters to anybody who buys their insurance uh, off of the exchange. We did, we made a tweak during the pandemic because we did not want people to be uninsured. And so we extended subsidies for ACA plans uh, so that nobody would pay more than eight and a half percent of their income uh, for insurance, for insurance premiums. And this bill, this climate and healthcare bill extends that till 2025. And that is life-saving for people to be able to afford insurance. It has resulted in record low rates of uninsured people. And after all, you know, we do have a messy medical system, but what we want is universal coverage so everybody can afford and access the care they need. Absolutely right, because a rising tide lifts all boats in a, in a scenario uh, like that and reduces costs uh, ultimately for everybody. So I find that to be a win-win. Um, I do want to ask you about the, uh, reflation, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act insofar as it addresses tax equity. Um, I, it, most of us find it absolutely appalling, right, that, that we pay our fair share in taxes. Uh, working people pay their fair share in taxes and corporations, major corporations, largely don't. Um, and, and, you know, further, we know that this resonates with voters, right? And, and so I, I guess I'm wondering how you think we frame this so that people really understand the importance of these provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act on tax equity. You know, Stefan, I frame it exactly the way that you just did. I pay my taxes, you pay your taxes. We do it in the simple way. I would guess that probably every one of us on this call does it with TurboTax. We plug in our numbers, everything auto imports, and that's how we pay our taxes. We don't have fancy accountants that know all these loopholes and that exploit things so that we don't pay our fair share. And that's all that this does. It is simply asking the wealthiest people and billion dollar corporations to just pay their fair share of taxes like the rest of us do. And that just seems fair. And so straightforward. <laughs> it really just seems like a very black and white issue. Um, I do want to shift gears and talk about something that you had touched on just a little bit earlier, which of course is reproductive rights. As we know, the Dobbs ruling overturned Roe v. Wade you gave a very impassioned speech, a uh, very moving speech on the floor when you voted for two bills uh, for the right to abortion access. And I know that you, uh, I believe you just recently spoke at a Planned Parenthood here in Washington about some of the challenges that people are now facing. I, I would love for you to just first and foremost, talk about the importance of having a pro-choice woman doctor in the house to address these issues, right? Uh, thank you for saying that, Stefan. Um, yeah. I wish it weren't so important, mm. um, but I'm the only pro-choice woman doctor in all of Congress, and that's the House and the Senate put together. I am one out of 535, and with the amount of misinformation, and that's a kind word for it, misinformation, because I can tell you that oftentimes they are just blatant lies that are meant to scare people and disgust people. The ability to have a woman pediatrician in there to say, you're not being truthful. I'm a pediatrician. I attend high-risk deliveries. I take those babies to the NICU to make sure they get good care. I just think it is so important to set the record straight. So that's number one. And number two, to emphasize 
every day that abortion care is part of routine women's health care. Women make up half of the population, and we sure as heck better be able to make our own healthcare decisions. And for the government, my gosh, for politicians to insert themselves in that decision is just plain wrong. And so I speak to this as a mom and as a doctor um, and as a daughter. I mean, we need to keep this decision in the hands of women in consultation with their doctors and not in the hands of a bunch of politicians who don't know what they're talking about anyway. So I'll ask you this, and this is something that's very, very much on the minds of everybody who is watching and listening right now. If the Democrats can manage to hang on to the majority in the House and can expand in the Senate, and look, gang, polls are shifting, right? So this is this is a very uh, this is very much a possibility. What do you think is possible in that scenario to protect reproductive rights in this country? Uh, look, with a with a solid pro-choice majority in the House and the Senate, we can make Roe the law of the land. And that's a really big deal. Imagine what that means to the one third of women in this country who no longer have access to safe legal abortion. It is a really big deal. The other thing about it is that this is in the hands of the voters that it is the voters who decide if we have that pro-choice majority in the House and the Senate. I, I will ask you uh, something that I know that we didn't really discuss ahead of time, but how do you see the the, the Dobbs ruling impacting this uh, election insofar as motivation uh, in, in terms of, you know, the Democratic base? Are, are you, are, is this something that you are seeing, that you are feeling, that you're experiencing when you're out talking to voters? Well, you know, the way that I'm talking right now and how I'm fired up, turns out women everywhere are fired up about this. Women in Kansas were fired up about this. Mm -hmm. Look at that vote to say, don't mess with my reproductive rights. Yeah, well, I'm hearing that all over this district too. And let me tell you that the doors I'm knocking, knocking at are not safe democratic doors. I am talking to the independents out there. I'm talking to some moderate Republicans out there who say, are you kidding? And women are fired up no matter what their background. And so um, they will show up and vote. Women made very wise decisions in 2018 by electing a record number of women to the House of Representatives. And uh, I believe the women will lead the way and uh, make very wise decisions this year in 2022 in order to protect their right to make their decisions about their bodies. Before we move on from this, I do want to point out for folks that you just introduced a bill to protect doctors who are safely performing abortions. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, this is, um, we think, I think, you know, mostly about the women and being left in the lurch. But this whole issue of abortion, what is an abortion, what isn't, and miscarriages, we're hearing all of these um, these gray areas that have left uh, doctors with a great degree of uncertainty. And I'm just going to throw out an example. Uh, you know, in Texas, we're hearing about uh, a physician, woman comes in, she's in the process of miscarrying, there's no chance that this fetus will survive. She has to call the ethics board and she has to call her lawyer before she can treat this woman who in the meantime will get sicker and sicker 
um, may hemorrhage, may get septic, whatever septic means infected, uh, you know, and it puts her life at risk. There are these gray areas about, you know, what exactly is life-threatening? Is it okay to have a little bit of heart failure? Is it okay to have a little bit of kidney failure? Like, where do you draw these lines? So doctors are operating with a great deal of uncertainty, and they're also operating with a great deal of anxiety. Hey, if I'm a doctor and I'm licensed in both Washington State and Idaho, and I, in Washington State, perform an abortion, is Idaho going to come after me? Is Idaho going to uh, to take me to court? Will they renew my medical license? Will uh, will I be able to get insurance as a physician in Idaho? So this bill is an answer to those questions. It protects doctors from being pursued by other states if they are practicing legally in a state where abortion is permitted. Uh, it gives them legal legal protections, and it also gives physical protections because we all we all know um, that abortion providers are targeted, harassed, threatened on a regular basis. Well, we really want to thank you for your work on this bill, for sure. Um, I want to also talk about the president recently moving to forgive $10,000 in student loans. It's a very big deal. Um, and it, it seems to me like it's something that's going to have some very long-reaching effects, obviously, uh, something like this will. Um, it is also my understanding that interest is also being forgiven for those who owe more now than they did 10 years ago, which is also very exciting. How do you see this impacting us here in Washington? Uh, you know, here in Washington, um, we have some really great policies. In Washington State, if you are a family um, that meets financial criteria and your child maintains a C average in school, you've got your first two years of post-high school education paid for at a public university or community college, no questions asked. That's amazing. I mean, fundamentally, <laughs> that is the reason that in Washington State we have the lowest levels of, uh, of student debt. And so I want to highlight not just what that will mean, to the, the forgiveness will mean to the people who are getting this little bit of breathing room um, because that is life-changing for them. But I also want to point to some of the other really important changes that have been made. One is that there's a system of income-based repayment. You know, you come out of college or you come out of CTE, you know, career and technical education, and your first job is not going to be your highest paying job. You kind of work your way up wherever you're coming from, right? And so as your salary grows, your responsibility for how much you pay back each year grows. The interest gets deferred, so it doesn't snowball on you. And this has dropped that income-based payment from 10% of your income down to 5% of your income. That's a really big deal. That means people have some breathing room. It means they can start saving to buy a house. They can, they can be adults and move on mm. with their lives and have the education they need. Again, whether that is career technical education, university education, whatever it is, um, to, to be their best, best selves. And, um, and I think that is great policy. Um, I also just want to point out um, the public service loan forgiveness as well, because it is a way to incentivize students to go into certain fields. Your loans can be paid off. And I think we can use the idea of debt relief very strategically. We need a lot of mental health providers right now. That would be a way to, you know, if somebody has an interest in working in the mental health field, 
let's help you pay for your education to be that person that we all need. So I think there's a lot that we can do and a lot that this just did. And it's very, very exciting and something that I think we'll all be watching very closely. And, you know, it, it's it's a bit of an equalizer, really. You know, you and I uh, are, I believe, roughly Generation X. And, you know, this is something that I think is going to help generations that have been hit so much harder than our generation did, by and large, uh, with student debt. So very happy to see that. Um, I also want to mention the CHIPS and Science Act that the president signed into law, because you recently visited a manufacturer here in Washington that was affected by the microchip shortage. Um, what if you could talk just a little bit about how U.S. made chips can mitigate things like supply chain issues and, and what the CHIPS Act will do on the CHIPS Act rather will do on this front? Yeah, I'm really excited about the CHIPS Act. Um, microchips are in everything, like everything, everything. They're in the computer that I am talking to you on right now, our phones, also in my glucose sensor and in my insulin pump and in our military equipment, in our cars. Uh, in our ovens and um, uh, and in our microwaves. I mean, they are in everything. And without those microchips, none of those things will work. And what we saw uh, is that what well, we saw during the pandemic that we were we were relying on China for masks, and it I think set off alarm bells for all of us that it threatens our national security to be entirely dependent on other countries. Now here in the US, Silicon Valley, right? We used to produce the majority of the microchips in the world. That is no longer the case. Uh, right now we are very dependent, particularly on Taiwan. And we know that there is a geopolitical unrest there that puts that supply at risk. Right now the US only produces 12% of the world's chips. And as a result, uh, in a supply chain challenge, we have automobiles in Michigan. Uh, my friends tell me who represent Michigan um, that are sitting there, they're all ready to go, but the electronics aren't ready because they are, they're still waiting for the microchips. And so it brings our economy to a standstill. This is bringing that manufacturing back home, bringing the jobs back home, shoring up our national security because our military requires microchips as well and making sure we're not dependent uh, almost entirely on a, on a foreign supply of such a critical good. It also invests in science and research. So very excited about it. I can actually have a protracted discussion with you about the need to bring uh, domestic manufacturing back to the United States in a, in, in a green way, but that would, I think, uh, take us a little off track and certainly would be fodder for a future conversation. Um, I do want to take a moment to talk about some of the things that you have achieved personally during your time in office. I will point out for everybody here watching, when you are on the doors, know that uh, Congresswoman Dr. Schreier has had 14 bills signed into law, six now under Biden and eight under Trump. The, the, the latter number really kind of blows my mind considering the, the, the political climate at the time. Uh, I wonder, just tell us about some of these bills and, and really just kind of the way that they have delivered for people here in the 8th. Uh, you got it. And, and thank you for highlighting that, Stefan. Also, um, you know, these are good, solid bipartisan bills. I mean, there's things in here like um, me partnering with uh, with Republican members of Congress on forest health and making sure that we can remove underbrush and manage our forests responsibly so they aren't subject to conflagration. It's things like speeding generic insulins to market. Um Working with Dr. Burgess in the House, Republican doctor from Texas, uh, 
not a pro-choice guy, but you know what we agree on? We agree that there should not be vaccine misinformation out there. So we worked on the Vaccines Act together, got that passed. And um, and I worked with Jamie Herrera Butler on making sure that kids, uh, families on WIC could get access to WIC during the pandemic and would have increased fruit and vegetable benefits. So um, these make a meaningful difference in people's lives. And I'm really proud not just to have them signed by both presidents, but the fact that these are bills that were born from Democrats and Republicans in the House working together. Well, you know, these are the sorts of things that uh, people, as I say, are talking about while they're out on the doors campaigning for you. And uh, another thing that is coming up very consistently, we know, is uh, concerns about the rising cost of living. I know you know this because you ran an ad uh, about it. And you know, two, two things I, I, I will ask about this. One is, we know this is a global problem. This is not something that is just, you know, the United States. Um, and it certainly is not something that is caused by the Biden administration, despite what the GOP says. Um, so I, I would ask you, first and foremost, talk about some of the ways that it's the Democrats who are actually coming to the table to try to solve this problem, as opposed to the GOP, right, who don't seem to be interested in solving any of these problems. It's, uh, you know, this is a really tough nut to crack because you're right. Inflation is happening all across the world. If you ask economists, much of this is a rebound from the pandemic. People are buying more things. Supply chains aren't keeping up. Um, gas prices are up. We've got war in Europe. Like, There's a lot of things to blame. Let me just tell you a couple things that I'm doing and a couple things you might find interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Let's start with the interesting ones first. Please, yeah. <laughs> it seems to me like every time I go to the supermarket, things are up again. And I'll tell you, like, wages aren't up again. Gas prices are coming down. Shelves aren't empty. Supply chains are working better because I work to get pop-up port expansion at Seattle and Tacoma ports. And so I just looked up net profits year over year for Kroger, um, net, so that accounts for wages, for gas, for everything, uh, up 340%. And I have to tell you that we talk about inflation, we throw this word around, but it's just not fair to call it inflation if you're just jacking up prices because you can get away with it. You know, like, hey, grocery store B is putting up their prices so we can get away with doing the same thing. And meanwhile, it's the American consumer who suffers. And I think that we need to shed some light on that. The other is that that is happening with gasoline as well, yeah. that at a time when we were paying record prices, uh, the oil and gas companies were making record profits, putting it into stock buybacks. Um, and we were all hurting. And that's why Katie Porter and I uh, banded together and passed a bill to crack down on price gouging. Um, so those are the interesting tidbits that I think people need to understand that it's not just all this mysterious thing and everything for some inexplicable reason is rising, that there is definitely price gouging and ripping us off that we need to be aware of and make decisions based on that. Um, the other things I want you to know is that on those supply chain issues, uh, I have been working to make those ports work better both for my hay farmers to get their goods overseas and to get those goods here and into stores so we don't have backups. Um, 
Yeah. I, well, so listen, a, a couple of things here. First and foremost, I really wanted to get your thoughts on how we message around uh, corporate price gouging in a way that you think will connect with voters. The other is, did you get to see Katie Porter's whiteboard? We have to know. Um, I did not see it in person. I did see it uh, on my curated Twitter feed. Um, yeah. And and I think it's great when you can just spell things out like that. I mean, it's uh, maybe I should have put that on a whiteboard. You know, I looked up Safeway too. <laughs> Their profits are up around two hundred percent. Like, well, how do we get this across? Like, I mean, really, because we know that we know this stuff, right? And and we know that the corporate price gouging is really largely responsible for these price hikes. And so, in your mind, what is the best way that we can message to voters to say, "Listen, we understand, we hear you," and and listen, we, we're all feeling this. We're all paying, you know, over a hundred dollars at the at, you know at the pump. It's ridiculous, but that you know the way in which we kind of place the blame is very very key here right now. So, how do you think we get that messaging across? Well, the way that I would do it is, you know, kind of the way we just talked about it. Like, it's really hurting all of us. Um, I talked about my trip to the grocery store. You know, it's hurting all of us, um, but it's not as simple as some would have you believe. And that there's a lot of things at play. And thank goodness, Dr. Schreier is working on supply chains. And she's asking the administration to suspend the federal gas tax. And she's cracking down on price gouging from oil and gas companies. But there's this other element that needs to be brought to light and that Congress can't control, right? This is, we live in a capitalist society. And that is that there absolutely is price gouging going on. And you can tell them that, you know, you look up the numbers yourself. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It would be actually a great thing to have a PDF with some of those points on it for folks on the doors. Um, I will say we're just about to get to our Q&A portion, gang. So if you have any questions for the Congresswoman, please enter them in the chat bar now. and We'll get to them as soon as we can. Um, one last thing is, you know, I know that everybody watching tonight and you and I are both very, very concerned about the threats to our democracy. And, and I mean, the good news, I suppose, in all of this is that it has been revealed that the vast majority of Americans care about and value our democracy. They value our fundamental rights. You know, uh, in fact, in point of fact, a recent NBC poll found that threats to uh, our democracy are now seen as the most important issue facing the country for 21 percent of registered voters. This is a huge, dramatic shift from what I believe about maybe a month or two ago when it was polling in the single digits. So you know, I'll just ask you, what do you make of this shift? And then this is another question about how you think we message the importance of this uh, to voters. Yeah, those are they're really interesting numbers, Stefan. And I I would like to know more before I could really comment on that. I'd like to drill down a little bit more on what people mean by a threatened democracy, because I think that it may depend on who you're asking, mm -hmm. um, what they think. And, you know, in our room here, we're thinking about making sure that everybody who's eligible to vote can vote and know that their vote is counted. Um, we're thinking about making sure that no individual secretary of state or state legislature can overturn a, a free and fair election. Um, that's what we're thinking about. I'm not sure that that's what every American that they're talking to is thinking about. And so I'd just like to see more data there. That is a fair point. And I understand what you're saying is that people on the other side may be thinking about, you know, election deniers may be thinking, well, our democracy is being threatened as well. Is, is, is that the, the, the kind of nuance that you're talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, they talk so much about, you know, the supposed election fraud that has never been proven. Right. Um, but I wonder if that is what you're starting to see in these numbers. So I would, I would just love to see more information. But, you know, that said, I am very concerned. I am looking at the world. I'm seeing a lurch toward authoritarianism. Um, I'm seeing it in Europe. I'm seeing it, you know, like, look how close things were in France. Like, I am seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing it in our country. I'm seeing propaganda in our country and around the world. I'm seeing the role of social media and spreading misinformation. And I'm seeing uh, a backing off on things like civics education and critical thinking um, in, in our education. And when you put together a lack of critical thinking and source checking with a rise in propaganda, that is a recipe for danger. Historically speaking, and yes, indeed it is. Um, so let me rephrase this question, if, if I may. So I would say of the voters that we are talking to on this issue, who we really need to convince that this is very, very important and very, very dire, in your mind, what is the best way? Because you talk to a lot of these voters. Are you finding a way to, to, to speak to them that really conveys the urgency in a way that gets them to kind of absorb it and say, oh, wait, maybe really, you know, this, this thinking that I have about we got to throw the bums out. The Democrats didn't do uh, everything we wanted to do this time. So let's give the, you know, this pendulum swing that we see. We can't have that this time around. And I'm wondering if there's a messaging, uh, any sort of messaging that is actually being uh, heard and felt in the voters that you're, that you're speaking with? So um, the way I generally approach things is not with a mind to, um, to convincing. Uh, I approach with a mind to listening. And so I see what's on their mind. And then we talk about what's on their mind, which is, of course, much easier for me to do as, as uh, the member of Congress, because I know all the things I've worked on and I can kind of tailor to whatever they want to talk about. Um, but I think that... Um, that that is important. You know, the other thing I would say, if people are just saying, you know, I'm done with it, you know, it, you know, this party has full control, you know, one of those civics lessons is that you need 60 votes to get something past the Senate, but it's the one place in our country um, in this democracy where majority does not rule. And um, I think that is very, I know for me, that is incredibly frustrating and in that in so many ways, you know, simple majority rule would mean that at least you would know uh, what each party would do with power because they could actually get it done. And then if you hate it, then you vote them out. And if you like them, then you give them another shot at it. But it's very, uh, I think, hard for people to um, to know when so much just gets stalled and blocked uh, in the Senate. That said, though, let me just tell you, um, this is quite a record of success. The CHIPS Act, the Health and Climate Bill, you know, the rescue plan that got shots in arms, kept businesses afloat, got our kids back in school safely. They've been in classrooms ever since. Like we are cooking here. And um, and I feel really good about that track record legislatively. And I feel really good about the way that I've been serving this district, whether that is um, you know, helping get big infrastructure projects everything from the Apple Capital Loop, which helps with emergency response and evacuation in Wenatchee to the roof on a senior center in Enumclaw and a school-based health clinic in Graham. Uh, you know, 
it is uh, I think it is that thoughtful approach of listening and then delivering um, that people are going to notice in this election. And I think it will uh, it will help us win in November. Well, you've certainly helped us feel good about a lot of these achievements. And I, I will say, and this is just me um, kind of sounding off on my own here, but it, it seems to me that if you add up everything that this administration has done over the last four years, if you frame it differently, it is one of the most successful agendas of any first term president. But I think we have a lot of work to do to sort of break through the media environment in order to deliver that message. And that, of, of course, is a completely separate discussion. But I will just uh, ask you one final thing before we get into the Q&A. Uh, we've talked about this uh, along the way. A lot of folks uh, watching and listening who are, are out there on the doors for you uh, right now in force. So I wonder if you have any words for these folks. Oh, boy. My words are thank you, thank you, and thank you some more. Um, this makes all the difference in the world. Uh, this race, as you all know, I mean, you've been studying this. This is one of the most contested races in the country, it is the race that will likely determine which party controls Congress. And this race could come down to 100 votes. I mean, it could be one of those incredibly tight races. And as my field director says, you know, that's a doorbelling difference. That's those last two doors on your list. And maybe you have a conversation and that person decides to vote. And I am just so grateful to you for putting in uh, that time, for being my ambassadors and spreading the word and sharing your enthusiasm because, you know, boy, we didn't get to do that in 2020. And I think we all really missed it. And I think people miss that warm touch of saying, you know, hey, I'm volunteering for Kim Schreier and she wants to know what you're thinking and what you're concerned about, and she'd love to earn your support. And I just think uh, that warm touch is really important in our democracy. And you're talking about the few people who really do make the difference. It sort of reminds me of the starfish analogy, only in this case, the starfish could save our democracy. Something to keep in mind. <laughs> Oh, I'm just full of, of, of wit and witticisms tonight, aren't I? Uh, I should mention uh, for everybody that uh, Kat is covering her face. Like, oh, make him stop. I should mention that uh, Indivisible co-founder Ezra Levin is coming to the district, y'all, uh, to bring attention to the, the importance of this very race. This is a national race. It is on everybody's radar. He's going to be joining us to talk about it. So as Rachel Maddow likes to say, watch this space. Okay, so with that, I'm going to turn things over to our dear friend, Kat Pipkin. She has some audience Q and A. Kat, over to you. Yes, and before we lose people, Dr. Schreier, I just want to point out to you that you have three indivisible groups in your district who are on the call tonight. Yes. Fantastic. And another eight who are also on the call, plus Code Blue and Citizens Climate Lobby. So I just wanted you to know that Indivisible has your back. I especially want to lift up the fact that Olympia Indivisible is on. Uh, and in fact, the, the lead for all of their work is on Melinda Holman, who's actually been responsible for part of the, this post postcarding program. Oh my gosh, going thank you. Out to your voters. So Thank you, everybody, all the groups who are on. Thank you, CCL and Code Blue. With that, we have some questions. The first comes from Lael White. Do you support, this is a little bit long, do you support rail workers' right to strike? Will you also support changes to the federal laws so that Amtrak will once again be responsible for re regional passenger rail routes shorter than 750 miles? And she adds that states can't fund everything that's needed. 
Uh, well, thank you for that question. I have to tell you that I am really hoping and I'm feeling optimistic. I'm you know, always cautiously optimistic, but I really want um, the railroad workers to be able to come to an agreement and not have to strike. You know, I mean, it is their right to, to strike, but this is um, this is something that we really want to avoid at all costs, especially given what's already going on with our supply chain and inflation and the way things have uh, have already been impacted. And so I know that negotiations are proceeding and uh, wish them Godspeed in doing that successfully so that we don't have any interruption in train service. And I thank them for their work. Next comes from Janet Carson, who asks about the safe reopening of schools uh, in the fall. Um, she mentions that we have lots of tools and, and you've talked a lot about this, things like vaccinations, boosters, and air filters. But she's asking, do you know if we're actually deploying them across all school districts and classrooms universally and equitably? Uh, I love that question. First of all, um, if any of you are in the Issaquah School District, uh, happy back to school day. Today was my son's first day in eighth grade. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. We've learned a lot about um, about what it takes to keep people safe. And that's evolved over our experience of the past couple of years of this pandemic. Um, and it turns out that in the schools where there was masking, there was virtually no transmission in the schools. And so it just doesn't seem to take rocket science, new HVAC systems, like open a window and wear masks if there are high levels of disease and the kids will probably be just fine. Um, also between vaccination and knowing that that's keeping us out of the hospital, like we have so many more tools right now. Um, so yes, dollars went out to schools. They were focused on Title I schools, which are the schools with the most need, which means that um, Issaquah School District, for example, where my child goes, um, got, got none of those federal dollars. Um, but it also turns out that you don't have to spend a bundle of money to get kids some fresh air and to put masks on them. And they do just fine. Yay, my teach my sister just started teaching this week full time in her own classroom. So I'm super glad to hear that as well. So thank you, Dr. Schreier, for that. It really, I mean, it's great to have that data, right? And yeah. then to look back and in retrospect say, hey, look at that. You know, if you do the right thing, everybody stays safe and we can get our kids in the classroom safely and have a you know normal life and have their families be protected because uh, we're all vaccinated. So Bill Austin with Indivisible Eastside, who's on the call tonight, asked a clarifying question. He is asking if student loan forgiveness applies to future loans or just past loans. Uh, so this applies to loans that have already been taken out. Um, I will need to get all of the details on this, but there's also income limitations. And my understanding is that this is really focused on uh people who I think the, the average income of the people helped is somewhere around $70,000 a year. Uh, and it is targeted at people who earn uh, less than $125,000 a year. So uh, it is targeted at the middle class. And again, I, you know, with, as we look at a, a ongoing going forward basis about college affordability, 
writ large, because that's really, you know, we can't just have rescues all the time. We need to do something about the cost of any education post high school. And, you know, a reminder, by the way, about apprenticeship programs, which are totally awesome uh, and in which you can earn while you learn and come out, you know, a journeyman and, you know, with the skills that you need after Congress just passed a big, gigantic infrastructure bill. Uh, Eric Johnson with Indivisible Washington's 8th Congressional District asks, congratulations on getting some insulin prices reduced. What are your plans to extend this to everyone? Uh, Well, Eric, uh, the House already did its job to extend this to everyone, and Democrats in the Senate did too. Uh, So we passed a bill to have $35 insulin across the board to everyone. Uh, And uh, they brought this up as a standalone bill uh, in the Senate, needed 60 votes to get it passed, uh, but only got 57. So once again, uh, a bill with popular support with well over 50% of the vote in the Senate uh, failed because it didn't get to supermajority level. And that is deeply frustrating and frankly dangerous for people who rely on insulin to stay alive and don't have insurance that gives good coverage for it. And last item here, Melinda, thank you for the course correct. I appreciate that. Uh, Melinda corrects me in saying Washington's Indivisible 8th uh, is actually leading on the postcards. That's Cheryl Spate. Thank you, Cheryl. Sorry, I know you're on the call. So next beer's on me. Oh, uh, Cheryl, if you're yay, on the call. Cheryl. <laughs> say something to Cheryl. Cheryl, thank you for the lovely note uh, you left for me. And thank you for postcarding. I was wondering if you would be on this call. So thank you, Cheryl. With that, I'll turn things back over to you, Stefan. Well, I just want to get a few final thoughts from you, Congresswoman. And, you know, you mentioned uh, in your uh, responses to some of the the questions that you're an optimist. And so I'll just ask you generally, are you feeling optimistic uh, about November? Um, look, I'm not a prognosticator, but here's what I'll tell you. The caliber of my colleagues on the front lines, that's what they call us, frontliners, on the front lines of Congress, you know, the the majority makers or breakers. Um, my colleagues are really high caliber people. They are good people. They are smart people. They are hard workers. They are doing in their districts the kind of work that I'm doing here in the 8th District, listening to people, going to bat for them, providing incredible constituent services, just really doing the work that it takes, not just to serve, but then to earn re-election. And it's not just about numbers or how lines are drawn. I think sometimes we forget to factor in the caliber of the candidate. And I know my frontline colleagues are astounding. And uh, that is what leaves me cautiously optimistic about November. And I know that I will continue to work my tail off Uh, on the official side. We will continue. I have an amazing office. I, you know, I am blessed uh, with people in in my office who are absolutely committed uh, from their hearts to, to serving this, this community. And so um, blessed with them, we will continue to, uh, to serve and hopefully win the day in November. 
We are very, very fortunate to be represented by you, and as ever, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. You know, I, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming back to us year after year. It has been uh, such a, a wonderful ongoing conversation that we have, and just please know that I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for all you do. Well, I appreciate all of you and, you know, that cautious optimism, you all factor into it, knocking those doors, lets people know how I've been serving. So thank you. Bless you all. And thanks for having me on, Stefan and Kat. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.